Um, great to be back with you. If I were you, I'd be sick of me by now. And so thanks for having me join you, inviting me to join you one more time. We have a lot to do, so I invite you to take your Bibles out, turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. I've been invited today to walk through the signs of Jesus' return. You're in this series, What Are the Signs of Jesus' Return? As you find Matthew uh, chapter 24 specifically, we're looking at a huge text, 44, actually 51 verses, but we'll read verses 1 to 44 at the beginning. Just a little housekeeping for you. Uh, If you were here on Friday night or watched uh, online on Friday night, I was asked a question regarding Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, and my answer was really a non-answer, and I don't like that. And so I've done some homework, additional homework, to refresh some some things that uh, I had studied in the past. And so if you want more information on Isaiah 65, 20, how that fits, I'm just going to give you a name, G.K. Beale, B-E-A-L-E. Just Google him. He's written a commentary on the book of Revelation, but also a 36-page PDF document that's been uploaded on Isaiah 65.20. So if you want to nerd out today, it's there for you. Google search him on your Google machines, and you can find it there. All right? All right. Let's read verses 1 to 44, Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away, and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? That's the question we're going to be answering today. When when will be, what will be, and when will be the signs, excuse me, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many, many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's Daniel chapter 9 verse 11 when Antiochus Epiphanes, Uh, The Greek king went into the temple and had pagan sacrifices in the temple. That's what he's referring to. So he refers back to that time. Says, when you see this, let, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in, in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. 
And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even, even the elect, which is not possible, just to repeat myself from last week. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, meaning there will be no question about it. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in, mar giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your, your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Whew! Lots. One of, if you're kicking the tires of Christianity and you're going, what is Christianity all about? What do they believe? Well, one of the key doctrines of the Christian faith is the return of Jesus. Jesus came once, he's coming again. But his second coming is going to be very different. In his first coming, obedience to the point of death. In the second coming, the consummation of, of his kingdom, reigning with those who are his. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven will be finally and fully answered. That Jesus is coming again. Why do we believe that? Why, why do you Christians, if you're watching online, why do you Christians believe that Jesus is coming again? Well, because it's talked about often. In Acts chapter 1, for example, at the ascension of Jesus, the disciples are looking into the heavens, these angelic figures come up to them, and they say this in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
But Jesus, of all people, Jesus himself affirms this when saying in John 14, a very oft uh, stated text at funerals, for example, in John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There it is. I'm coming. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. But here's the question. What between... What should we give ourselves to between now and then? What can we expect between now and then? And what are we to be about in the meantime? That's what our text answers. Matthew 24, Matthew 25 encompass the largest text, the largest teaching from the mouth of Jesus on the the topic of the coming of the end of the age. This is what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse, simply because he taught it when he was standing on the Mount of Olives. Simple understanding of that. And it answers that question. What should we, the church, give ourselves to? But here, this is something we must do. There's a big theological white elephant in the room that we read in our text. And we actually talked about it a number of times on Friday if you were, if you were here watching. And that, and that elephant, that, that theological white elephant, is that in verse 34... Jesus says that all of these things that he lays out in chapter 24, including his second coming in verse 30, would take place in this generation. That's a theological white elephant. A lot of ink has been spilled on this. So how do we figure this out? You know already that there's differences of opinion in how we figure this out. So what are some common ideas? Well, one common idea is that Jesus was just wrong. He simply was, he got it wrong. I don't believe that, I don't hold to that, but that is what some suggest. Jesus thought he was going to come back soon. The son didn't know when the return was, Jesus said himself, right? So maybe Jesus thought he was coming back quickly. I don't agree, but that's where some people land. Others suggest that this generation refers to the Jewish people. That the Jewish people would not be would not pass away before the return of Jesus. That's another option. Again, uh, this second option, like the first, I don't agree with. Others believe it refers to the human race in general. I I think that's pretty weak, but I want to give it to you. Some, however, and I kind of lean here. I'm not sure where I lean fully, but the next two are kind of a combo for me. Some believe it speaks of a type of person. This generation speaks of... To a type of, why do we say that? Because that's how it's often used in the Bible. For example, this generation is used to speak of the righteous in Psalm 14.5. You can look up this stuff on your own. And those who seek God in Psalm 24.6. In Psalm 12.7, this generation speaks of the wicked. Let me just, let me read that one. Uh, It's not on the screen if you want to flip there really fast. And if if not, I'll just read it for you. But Psalm 12 is about the wicked and how the righteous are, are being persecuted by the wicked. And then the psalmist says this in Psalms, Psalm 12, verse 7. You, O Lord, will keep them, meaning the righteous. You will guard us from this generation forever. So you will guard us from the wicked forever. Not just those who are there then. So it 
could speak to a type of person. In fact, what really stands out about Matthew 24 is that in Matthew 23, Jesus uses the same expression to speak of a type of person. Just notice it in verses 34 to 36. Jesus is giving, he's speaking to the religious leadership and he's talking about how the religious leadership going all the way back to Abel killed the righteous. And just notice what he says, 34 to 36. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered. They didn't murder him, but their type did. You murder between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So it could be a type. I think there's good support for it. Or, and you heard Fred, if you were here on, and I love Fred, love him. You heard Fred talk about how this generation is just a reference to the people living at the time of Jesus. And, and what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 is the fall, right? The fall of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And when, when, when Matthew, or Jesus via Matthew, talks about the abomination of desolation and says, let the reader understand, going back to Daniel 9, when, again, Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, something like that was going to come again. Let the reader understand. And in AD 70, it did. That generation saw it. And what Jesus is saying to them, when you see this coming, let the reader understand, hit the hills, man. Get out of town. And pray you're not pregnant. Pray it doesn't happen in the wintertime. Get out of town. Get out of Dodge. Understand this. So I believe Jesus is talking about that generation. I believe that he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But here's the thing. Where I take it a step further, and I'm not alone in this, is I believe Jesus is talking to that generation, but that generation serves as a foreshadowing of a time to come. I think there is a time coming where, where we, the reader, are to understand we're going to see something at the end of the days, and, and we better keep our eyes and ears open. Something like this is going to happen. Yes, it's taking place then, but it serves as a foreshadowing. It serves as, as an example. In the same way that Jesus went back to the example of what took place in Daniel, saying that's an example then of something that's going to happen now, and I believe Jesus is doing the same thing for us. But I could be wrong. I'll leave it with you to argue over nicely. So here, the disciples understandably, coming out especially of Jesus' discussion in the first couple verses of our chapter, where he says, hey, you know this temple? There's not going to be one stone left on, a, on another. Again, that happened. And it hasn't been rebuilt. It hasn't been rebuilt since. Why? Because Jesus is a temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of temple language. That's why it hasn't. But they, they ask, when? When? I mean, if you walked outside in the parking lot, not that Matt is Jesus, but if Matt said, hey, pretty nice building, right? And you go, yeah, this is a really nice building. He says, you know, I'm going to tell you, it's, time's coming when not one light's going to be on top of the other, not, not one piece of wood's going to be. You're going to be going, what? When? Well, Jesus doesn't answer when. He doesn't concern, him, concern himself with when, but he does talk about the signs leading up to it. He talks about the signs leading up to this, the signs leading up to his coming. 
So what are those signs? What should we be aware of? Well, let me give them to you one at a time, if you like taking notes. Here's the first. There will be wars and rumors of wars. That's one sign, which is certainly true in our day, is it not? I listen to a number of podcasts during the week, and one of the hosts on one of them constantly cries out when he talks about the things going on around the world. People, it's 2020. Can't we just get along? I mean, come on. Can't we just figure it out? Well, it just doesn't seem like we can. Currently, there are four military conflicts in the world that see over 10,000 deaths per year, the largest being the Afghan conflict, where last year 41,000 deaths were recorded. There are 11 others with deaths between 1,000 and 9,999, 18 others with totals between 100 and 999. And 15 others with totals under, under 100. That's 53 current conflicts in, in total. There's also the ongoing holy war being carried out by the religious extremists on innocent civilians. And I probably don't need to remind you, because we're not that far away from it, that the 20th century was the bloodiest century on record. An estimated 123 million people died in the 20th century by way of wars and the atrocities connected to them. It was the bloodiest, like I said, of all centuries. As one has said, the 20th century bears dramatic witness against the so-called evolution and enlightenment of man. As another has said, we've seen some unbelievable achievements over the past hundred years, with one of them being the ways we now can kill each other. But norm, hasn't there always been war? Well, absolutely there has always been war, but nothing in comparison to what we have seen in the last hundred years. Currently, the UN is involved in 13 so-called peacekeeping operations around the world. According to its website, the number of wars they state being waged is growing. I'll quote from their website. UN peacekeeping is facing an extraordinary challenge currently. The number of operations is reaching a record level. Troop deployment is on an upward spiral, and the need for more civilian specialists is becoming acute. This year, 1.8 trillion, that's trillion with a T, trillion dollars will be spent worldwide on national military budgets. According to various websites that I checked out and lead up to this message, it would cost between 30 billion with a B and 115 billion with a B, <laughs> going through maturity or whatever you call it. What do you call that? Anyways, puberty, thank you. I was looking for that word. Back to a serious topic now. Um, it would cost between $30 billion and $115 billion to feed the starving for a year. About 7% what is spent on military budgets. A second sign. There will be famines and earthquakes, Jesus says in verse 7. There are, and I know some of you know this because this is a passion of yours, there are currently 815 million undernourished people in the world. COVID-19 has killed about a million people this year. Seven million will die of starvation this year. I don't say that as a political statement. I'm just giving you a comparison. And seven million people will die next year and so forth. The, the current East uh, Africa drought 
Uh, the Horn of Africa drought that some of you know of is the worst in 60 years. It has led to deaths of hundreds of thousands, with 10.7 million people currently on the Horn of Africa facing severe hunger. Uh, an individual, I came across this quote, who is on the ground, Abdilalal Yassin, age 70, states, this drought is leaving nothing behind. In previous droughts, we used to lose some animals, but we would always have food and water, but this is different. It is sweeping away animals and people. When I was in Tanzania a year ago, one of the things I heard was how human sacrifices have increased during this drought. The reason why in places not only like Tanzania, but Somalia, Kenya, um, and so forth, Ethiopia as well, is they are trying to appease the gods with human sacrifices so that their gods would send rain. It's tragic. What about earthquakes? The, the National Earthquake Information Center, that's a website you can go look on your own, now locates about 20,000 4.0 and up earthquakes around the globe each year, or approximately 55 per day. According to long, long-term records since about 1900, so 120 years, we can expect between 16 major earthquakes in every given in any given year. That's 7.0 and up. That includes 15, 15 in the magnitude 7 range, and, and one earthquake magnitude 8 or greater. In the past 40 to 50 years, their records show that we have exceeded the long-term average number of major earthquakes about a dozen times. A third sign. It will be a time where lawlessness will be increased. What is Lawlessness. When you study language connected to sin in the New Testament, there are three different words that are used in connection with sin. Two of them, however, speak of sin in an ignorant way, meaning we sin, but we really don't know. Um, we, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, we don't even know we've sinned. And then, however, there is one that is talked about where we deliberately oppose God's law. That's lawlessness. It speaks of those who know the moral law of God but choose to do away with it altogether. They choose to do what is lawless. They're a law unto themselves. But here's the thing about lawlessness. The lawless are those who turn from God, turn from what they know is right, choose to do wrong, but call it good. That's the difference. As Paul writes in Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree, and we all do because it's written on our hearts, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That's common today. A fourth sign. It will be a day of false prophets and false Christs. A false, and you can see this in verse 11 and verse 24, a false prophet is anyone who teaches what is contrary to the word of God. So it's across the board. A false Christ is someone who promotes themselves as a way of salvation. That's what a false Messiah, false Christ is. Again, you don't have to look very far to find either of these today. Today, over a billion people follow the prophet Muhammad, who teaches that Jesus, the Christ, is no Christ at all. The current Dalai Lama, the face of Buddhism, 
today sees Jesus as a wise teacher, but certainly not divine. Both ideas run contrary to what Jesus said of himself. So either they're wrong or Jesus is wrong. They can't coexist in spite of what the bumper sticker says on the back of the Prius or what have you. That's probably not very nice. I shouldn't have said that. I take it back. Well, it's my last day here. I mean, you know, what what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Fifth sign. Fifth sign. I'm kidding. Love you guys. Fifth sign. It will be a time of Christian persecution. Christians will be hated for simply being Christian. As Jesus says, they will be hated for my name's sake. And therefore, what does this mean? It means that this time will be harder on the Christian than it will be on for those who don't follow Christ because the Christian will still encounter wars and famines and the like, but also hatred that comes with being a follower of Jesus. There's a a watch watchdog agency, a Christian watchdog agency called Open Doors that records that two Christians are killed per per hour around the world, about 17,000 a year, and that one in nine experience high levels of persecution today. The war in Syria, for example, has forced four million, million people, Christians, from their homes. Open open Doors estimate that 245 million Christians today face torture and possible death simply for saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad you came today? Like, like this is is tough stuff. This is hard stuff. But here's the thing about what I love about Matthew 24. In the midst of it, there's some good news. Like literally good news, because what Jesus says, in the midst of all this, the gospel shall be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 14. But then he says this, and then the end will come. I've spoken of this, I think I touched upon it Friday, last Sunday, certainly, but you may find find it of interest if you missed that, uh, to know that Christianity's greatest expansion has occurred over the last 50 years, not even close. We may not realize it because too many of us still believe the epicenter of Christianity is in the West. It's not. Uh, Latin America, South America, China, certainly. Africa, for example. People are coming to Jesus in record number. The nations are truly hearing and responding to the gospel. In fact, the escalation of missionaries that are coming to North America from those places is going up. It's wonderful. We're the mission field now. It's great, and we need it. And and the great thing is that we live in unprecedented unprecedented times where via modern technology, we can take the gospel literally around the world if, if you have a Wi-Fi connection. Like there may be five billion people watching me right now. Wouldn't that be? That'd be terrible. That'd be terrible. <laughs> I'd have lost all the Prius drivers when I said that. They would have gone. A seventh sign. The end comes, but before that, seventh sign, things will go from bad to worse. It will be like contractions that lead up to giving birth. 
the signs will get more pronounced and become more, more frequent. Um, I know I'm going to sound like Grandpa Funk when I say this, but it's certainly, in my lifetime, and I know generations say this, all generations say this, I, I get it, but it seems that the escalation of lawlessness over the last 10 years especially is escalating in unprecedented ways. It just seems like it. And again, call me Grandpa Funk, I get it. Uh, but claiming to be wise, so many people claiming to be wise have become fools. Like, it's just folly what you hear people talk about today. An eighth sign, eighth and then a ninth. Then we'll talk about how are we to live. The eighth sign is that life will go on as usual. Why do I say that? Because in verses 37 to 39, Jesus uses the example of the days of Noah and what he says is the people at the time of Noah were doing mundane things. They were eating, they, they were drinking, they were getting married. They were just doing life. But while they were doing life, they were ignoring the preaching of Noah and, hey, what's that big boat? What's that all about? Ignoring the preaching of Noah, ignoring the ark being built, and they eventually got caught unaware. They were busy doing life. Nothing wrong with doing life, eating, drinking, getting married, and so forth. That's great stuff. But don't, while we're doing life, ignore the, the building of the clouds on the horizon, is Jesus' point. A ninth sign, and the final one. It will be unexpected, and it will happen quickly. It will come like a thief in the night. At an hour we do not expect. With all due respect to people I know who differ with me on this, we are to resist the thinking that the time is far off. To give in to the voice of the mockers in 2 Peter 3 who say, where is your God? And Peter says in response, don't think the Lord's patience is like yours, ours. God is being patient so more people will come to Jesus. But don't give in to the mockers. So those are the signs. Okay, those, when is it going to happen, Jesus? Not telling you, but here are the signs. But here is something that Jesus also does that I think is good counsel for us. Jesus tells us, look, I don't want you to be so focused on when. Yes, I'm going to give you signs, but here is the counsel of Jesus even more than that. He tells us how to live in the meantime. Here's what I want you to be about. I, I don't want you to hunker down in your bunker. I don't want you to just think about when, 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 when. I don't want you to get over-fascinated with certain things. I want you to live a certain way. Because yes, the time is short, so let's redeem the time. Let's make most, the most of the time. So Jesus, tell us. As we close, Jesus, tell us how we are to live in the midst, in the midst of this time. Here, here's the first. We are to live with fearlessness. Verse 6. Jesus calls us in verse 6 not to be alarmed, for this must, be, this must take place. D don't be alarmed. Why? Because there is one who stands sovereignly over it all, which is the purpose, again, of the number 1,000 as connected to the millennium. What does the number 1,000 point out? God is sovereign. God rules. God's in control. He's over it all. We aren't to live in fear, but in love and faith self-discipline. Don't be alarmed for none of it will separate us from, from the love he has for us. No tribulation. 
No distress, no persecution, no famine, no war, no, no hunger, no nakedness, no danger or sword can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Romans 8. Now, when I say we're not to fear, I'm not saying that we won't be tempted to, because if we weren't tempted to, we wouldn't have to be counseled not to fear. It, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we won't be confronted with that which causes fear. It doesn't mean that either. We will go through hard times. Right? We all. We, I have, I'm, a, I'm in a family of four. I have two kids and a wife. Barring some crazy day doing something horrific, one of my family members, my immediate family members, will bury the other three. They will go through hard times. One of them more than the others. So hard times are coming. We will go through. We will be confronted with things like death. It will be hard. But we shouldn't be guided by that fear. We aren't to give into that fear. We aren't to have that fear lead us. Uh, we aren't to have that fear cause us to give up. Which leads to the second call in these times. We're called the perseverance. Jesus prophesies in verse 10 that many will fall away. Many will be duped by false prophets that they listen to. This is why Jesus says, see to it that no one leads you astray. In, in other words, what Jesus is telling us is that in these days, nominal Christianity won't survive the increase of birth pains. If you love this world most, and, and you rest your hope on, on this world most, you will absolutely become terrified when something threatens it. Because it's being taken away. It's, it's showing itself to be untrustworthy. It's, it's removing that which we are holding on to tightest. Certainly see this during the, the last eight or nine months. God's being demonstrated as being no gods at all. As Jesus said earlier of the second soil, earlier in the book of Matthew, when tribulation, tribulations or persecu excuse me, persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. So they hear the word, love it, persecution, testing comes, they fall away. So Jesus says, persevere, persevere. What should also mark us is expectancy. If fear shouldn't mark the follower of Jesus, what should mark them is longing to see Jesus. Which makes sense, right? It makes sense that we want to see the one we love. Don't you want to see the one you love? Like I'm thinking of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, we haven't seen him, but boy do we love him. With a love that is indescribable. We should, long, we should long to see the one we love. Paul writes, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you? Do you? I know the pushback on this when we start talking about the end of the days and we start talking about the return of Jesus. The common pushback is, if you become so heavenly minded, you won't make any earthly good. But that's not the Christian life. 
We, we won't make any earthly good unless we become more heavenly minded. I like the, I like the balance that Paul strikes in Philippians 1.25. It's not on the screen, but he says, he says there, I have, a des- I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. But I know that if I stay here, it will be good for you and others. That's the Christian life. Having a desire to be with Jesus while doing good ministry in the meantime, sadly, too many in the church realize neither. They, they, they don't want to see Jesus. And they don't give themselves to ministry either. And it's sad. Tied to this, what should also mark us is gospel proclamation. We are called to bring the testimony of Jesus to the nations. Be, be tw- between now and then, whenever then is, we are to be sharers of the good news. We are to be salt and light. We are to be people of good works. There's a reason why the church is described in Revelation 1 to 3 as a lampstand. We are to be light. We are to be a city on a hill. We are to be proclaimers. We are to be sharers and tellers, both in word and deed of, of Jesus. Remember, we are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head, we are the body. We're the hands and the feet and the nose and the ears of Jesus. We're we're his mission through us. There's no plan B. We are his conduits of grace. Here's the last thing that we need to give ourselves to, and that is we're to be marked with readiness. We need to be ready for his return. Just take a look, and I'll close with this text. Verses 20, uh, excuse me, 45 to 51. So who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, my master's not coming back for a long time. And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. That master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And will cut him in pieces. And put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds harsh. But in my prep what I discovered is that not only was this a thing being cut in two. But it was, it was reserved most of all for those who committed treason, those with divided loyalties, in other words. It, they were cut up as a sy- symbolic picture of living divided lives. And it seems that's what Jesus is using it here to describe the reality of those who claim to know God but are, aren't living for him but are divided and ki- committing spiritual treason as, as a result. We need to be ready. How are we ready? By faithfulness. By being about Jesus and and sharing Jesus. Because he is coming back. Will your house be ready? When the owner of the house comes home, will your house be ready? And I I don't say any of this to scare you. I don't. 
I say, say this, to come, he's coming again. Like your life lived for Jesus will not be a waste. He's coming again. And he's got you in the palm of his hand. And he's sovereign over it all. He's coming again. We're going to see him face to face. And we're going to become like him. Because we're going to see him. No more famines. Wars. No more death. Done away with. When we've been there not 10,000 years. When we've been there 10 billion years. Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days. To sing his praise. Than when we first begun. 10 billion years. And his grace will still taste sweet because his grace is immeasurable. We'll never get to the bottom of it. Think about that, man. It's so sweet. Let me pray. Ah, Jesus. Um, I, I thank you for your teaching. I thank you for this text. I thank you for what we see here. I thank you for giving us some insight but encouraging, encouraging us in the insight to, hey, look, don't focus on when so much. Focus on faithfulness. Focus on telling more people about me because I am coming again. And for some, as you say, Jesus, in Matthew 24, for some, perhaps even many who don't know you, your return will be a day of mourning. Oh, that's sad. It's so sad. And so I pray, again, quicken us. May our love for you increase. We want more of you, Jesus. Stir our affections for you, Jesus. Increase our burden for the lost. May the, the things of this world become less and less important to us. Our love for you grow and grow and grow. People of righteousness and faithfulness, for your namesake, I pray. Amen.